Welcome to Surviving Society with Chantal and Tiso. This season's broad theme is navigating uncharted territory. If you enjoy the podcast and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of Surviving Society. We are really excited today. I always say we're really excited, but we are excited. So I'm just going to keep saying it because we are ex- always excited. We are, every episode. we are, we are. But we are joined today by Dr. Evan Joseph, who is a author, social justice activist, motivational speaker, lecturer of black studies, consultant, researcher, and the author of the new book, Critical Race Theory and Inequality in the Labour Market, Racial Stratification in Ireland. Wow, this is like, this is exciting stuff. Like, it's one of those episodes, T, where it's like, we're talking about a subject that we're both really interested in, but don't know as much about, but are going to be sort of like, learning a lot, basically. So, race in Ireland. Evan, like, tell us, how did you come to be writing about this stuff? Thank you so, so much. First, just to say thank you for having me. <laughs> um, I love talking about my book. I love talking about race. So you're, you're getting me to talk about something. You know, this is my pet love. Oh, <laughs> something I, something I love talking about. How did I get into writing about race, racial stratification? I was working for an organization. I mean, apart from my own personal experience in the labor market, which I would get to, but what really brought me into writing about this book and to where I am today is that I was working for an organization and we were supporting people who are of migrant descent to navigate the labor market, you know, and people who had right to live and work in Ireland. So they were not asylum seekers. They had the right to work, you know, without a work permit, you know, because most times when we talk about inequality in the labor market, people always try and conflate it with all oh, the asylum seekers. They don't have right to work. So this organization, everyone had the right to work. What myself and my colleagues noticed was that because they were all migrants, you know. So if they were Eastern Europeans, you know, or Western Europeans, it was easy, easier for us to help them navigate the labor market. So within two to five, six months, we helped them find work, you know, or for that training. But we noticed that our Black participants, you know, from the African continent, it took us an average of two years to help them navigate the labor market. And I'm saying that even unpaid work, voluntary work, unpaid work, it was taking us an average of two years. So I found that that navigating the labor market for this group of people really meant we ended up having to get them to go back to school to retrain people who had level nine when they came to Ireland. So like level nine would be like a master's degree. With their master's degree, we actually then had some of them had to start going back to do a level five, which would be like a PLC, like after you finish secondary school. You know, so they were dropping down four to five levels below where they had so that they could love, get jobs at the lower end of the labor market because they couldn't get work you know, that was at their level. So that was one of the things I was like, okay, you know, it's not just enough for me to say that this is the experience. I need to understand why. How do we theorize this? You know, I didn't just want to describe, you know, that, oh, this is what's happening. I wanted to be able to um, theorize it. What is the theory around that, you know? Because people ask you, you know, every time we hear that, you know, the reason people don't get the same outcome, you know, in the labor market is because they are immigrants. I'm like, okay. If it's because they are immigrants, then every immigrant who comes to Ireland who has the same level of education should have the same outcome, right? Wrong. (laughs) You know, that's not the case. So based on your nationality of descent, your experience in the labor market becomes different. So I wanted to understand why. And then as a parent, I have two boys. I also wanted to know if all of this work, you know, so I'm hardworking, I'm going to college and I'm getting my kids to go to school and blah, 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 you know, like I wanted to be sure that 
all of this investment in their life meant that they would not, they will not have this um, experience that I had noticed, you know, amongst Black participants coming to the program. So I wanted to find out how can we make sure, is there anything that can be done? So really it was a combination of two things. One, I wanted to understand the problem, but I wanted to also see, is there something that can be done, you know, around it? How would you describe racial stratification? Okay, so key things, you know, so first thing I would say about racial certification is that it is a homogenizing system. So it is a system, it's a structured system of inequality where a a value is assigned to people and that value um, determines where people start in the society. It determines what they can get, where they can go. It determines their access to economic, social and um, racial positioning. So it really determines where they can be on the ladder. As my personal experience in encountering that system, when you first become aware of it, is when you're in a space where you see that. So whether it's a academic space or a corporate space, and because you're in there, and someone will say, oh, you're not like X, you're not like... And then you're thinking, well, who's that silent person you're talking about? Who are you comparing me to? That idea. So there's an idea of a comparison that's going on, but you don't really realise it until someone says it to you, like, oh, you're not really like... And I'm like, not really like who? I don't really understand the question. But... That's when that's my first kind of understanding of that racial stratification. I've walked into a space and it's understanding my value in that space. And you hit the nail on the head that when you come into that space, that mm-hmm. you that comes in, the value that is assigned to you, it's not one that you have brought in. It is mm-hmm. one that has been decided without your permission. And that's mm-hmm. when it's problematic. They don't ask you, oh yeah, what, what what level do you want to be at? No, they look at you based on the way you look, based on your name, based on how you sound, based on the GDP of where they think you're from, originally mm-hmm. from, they mm-hmm. assign a value. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. that value that is assigned is not an individual one, it's a group value. So that group value determines where you start, you know, and I always say something most times when we talk about inequality in the labor market, we talk about where people end up. I'm like, no, where people end up become inevitable based on where they start. So racial stratification, that framework actually pulls it back. It brings you to a point where you are saying, actually, let's pull it back and understand where people start. In other words, when you start so far back, where you end up is almost inevitable. In the book, I actually describe a a childhood game we used to play. Mm -hmm. And in that game, you know, like, you know, you play it with adults, you know, older people. So what the adults used to do is they, they, they start far back, you know, they start behind because they're bigger and taller. And then they ask the kids to go, you know, run up in front and go and start in front, you know, and then you go into a race. But because you're smaller, you're starting so much ahead. And because they are bigger, they start behind. Now, racial stratification is like that kind of race. Unfortunately, this time, the marginalized group, those who do not seem to belong to that um, accepted group are starting far behind, like 50, 20, you know, 100 steps behind, while those who look like us are part of the dominant group are starting far ahead. One thing which I say about it is that racial stratification provides uh, affirmative action for the dominant group. That's what it does. That's such a poignant thing to say. Like, it's so true. Just sort of blown away by how accurate that description is. Again, I guess it's anecdotal. I would argue that as part of the marginalised group, you're aware that you're aware of this burden. You're aware that you have to prove. So young black parents have that conversation with the kids. You're going to have to work three times as hard. You're going to have to work twice as hard. But then black parents explain this to the kids. No, no one actually explains it. They just tell them. So I was told this for a very long time with no no understanding, no no context. And it's not until you start getting it. So I have an awareness, but no no true understanding why I've been told that. So when I encounter this as an adult, I'm like, oh, so now I understand. But then the, the inverse of it is the dominant group, They because no one has that conversation, they do not understand their positionality. They don't understand the weight of history, the weight of history, the weight of social and cultural norms that sits behind them gives them an advantage over me. Plus, with the intersectionality of created wealth, yeah. it gives them a massive leap. And trying to explain that to someone, like, it, it's odd. And you find it's very difficult to try and say, look, listen, because of all this history and because of the current moment and the amassed wealth, this is why you're here. 
ironically, the mass wealth is built upon my suffering. It's difficult because when you're getting people to hear this, you're actually almost trying to tell them that this thing we call meritocracy is a myth. And you know, nobody wants to hear nobody wants to hear that because we want to believe that no, I got there by myself. I got there because I'm hardworking, you know. So when you tell them that no, actually, you know, you got there because you know whiteness privileged you. For it was an affirmative action for white people, you know. And that the Western world is an affirmative action for whites. That's it, you know? So so, so that's what you're saying. And so it's a very difficult conversation to have. It's, an ex- it's even more difficult for anyone who is white to hear. Now, don't get me wrong. And, you know, just for your listeners as well, I'm not saying that every white person who um, gets to the top got there, you know, by things being handed to you. No, I'm saying that, you're starting on a point that people who are competing with you, they are starting a hundred steps behind you so that your whiteness has privileged you. It's a resource, you know, it has given you a head start. For example, you don't have to seek a visa to work in, in Ireland. You don't need them. Um, they don't need to check your birth certificate because you have a name that sounds like that. They don't need to consider whether you can speak English well or not because you look a certain way. They automatically assume that you're English speaking. You know, people automatically respect you in the workplace. You know, um, when you're black, you're trying to, you know, when you're leading a team that is not, um, that is white and you're a black person, it's more difficult. Like, just so many things, you know, so you find that, you know, the automatic expectation, the automatic trust, you know, on you as a white person, you know, is a resource. Unfortunately, we cannot legislate against that. Unfortunately, we cannot even count it as a resource. What's kind of upsetting is that my position is always performative now. I'm always having to demonstrate my value, my economic worth to you. So whether it's as a good migrant or whether how good I can assimilate, or it's all, I'm always on a thing of performance. Given how far back I'm starting, and I'm still having to demonstrate three or four times more to prove that I'm somehow... I can get to this, this this kind of imaginary level, which I can never get to because that's not how it's going to work, right? In one of the chapters, I write about how experience reconstructs our identities. You know, your experience does not leave you unscathed. That when you go through these experiences, our identities become reconstructed. So some of the experiences, what one of the what you describe now is what I describe as guilty until proven innocent. You're mm-hmm. guilty of something. You know, you're guilty of being a gangster. You're guilty of being, you know, a runaway dad. You're guilty of something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so you're always guilty of something, you know, as a black person. So as a black woman, you're guilty of something. As a black man, you're guilty of something. Even our black boys are guilty of something. So you're guilty until proven innocent, you know. And that's what you're talking about, the performativeness of it, that we all constantly have to prove to you, no, I can speak English. No, I will mm. come early to work. No, you know, mm. I can I can lead. I'm a good leader. No, you know, so you're constantly having to prove that. So it's a guilty, you're guilty of something constantly because you're being measured against an internal stereotype, you know, and that is that default positioning, you know, that people, we are always re- returned to our default position. In the UK, we just got profiled on Dawn Butler. And I was going to post on Twitter to explain that, you know, and that's what I talk about, about a, a default starting position. So one of the things I say about racial stratification is that every one of us, based on your nationality of descent, based on what I call stratifiers, we have assigned a default starting position. When you, like Obama, you know, like Don Butler, you know, like, you know, because of your positioning, you move economically, you move, but your racial position never changes. Mm. Your racial position is always at the bottom. So what happens is when you're in a space, like in your office where you are known, you're economically seen higher, you're, you know, seen socially, you're seen a little bit higher. But when you go into a space where you're unknown, you are returned to that re- default positioning. And that's where you can ask you, where are you going to? Do you have a right to be here? Can I see, you know, so suddenly you you suddenly are returned back to your stereotype. And that's why um, microaggressions for black people, it can fatally be reenacted at any time. Why? Because you're returned to your stereotype every point in time. Now, this is what I found quite interesting. So, even, so I was thinking about, 
think about the, the movement of Black Lives Matter and also thinking about the movement, the civil rights movement in the 60s. So lots of narratives were saying if black people owned their own business, it would change everything. It would change it if we had economic independence. No, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter. You could have a billion pounds. You could have everything. It wouldn't matter because the stereotype remains. Remains, and you can see that it's paralleled. Like you said, the best example is probably Obama, high political power, running the, the most powerful nation in the country, but his color still holding him back. Absolutely, and it was referred to right. Yeah, there was a case of Fran. I don't know if you remember that it was yeah. in Switzerland. You know, mm-hmm. um, when when in the United States, come on, everybody knows Oprah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like she's wealthy mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. You know, and we respect her, but she was in Switzerland where the storekeeper mm-hmm. did not know <laughs> her. You know, and she got into a shop and she wanted to buy a bag. But that day she was not Oprah. What was she? She was her skin color. She was a stereotype. She was a mm. black woman. And that was it. It was like pretty woman all over again. The girl called her. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's so cathartic actually talking about race in this way, like how it's lived within the everyday. But I was wondering for the purpose of the listeners as well, if we could roll back to Ireland. And let's talk about race in Ireland. Yeah, I think the key things that we begin to look at when it comes to the issue of race, people resist, they reject, you know, they deny, you know, race is not real, race, you know, racism doesn't exist and all of those things, you know. But when we go back to the origin of race, how was race created? Race was never created to be a good thing. Race was created to, to develop a hierarchy between the superiors and inferior. So already the notion of race was already problematic. It already created a hierarchy. A hierarchy means that we're saying one group is better. The minute you apply the notion of better to anything, you have created inequality, you have created conflict, you have created a problem. So if we go back to that, we see that that's where the notion of race started from. And so the notion of race was to separate Europeans from non-Europeans. And when we say Europeans, we don't just mean because today we're all Europeans, but of course they don't see us as Europeans. We are permanent strangers, <laughs> you know, because, you know, they keep going back, you know, to this same. So when we say Europeans, we actually mean white Europeans. And so race was created to um, show the superiority of white Europeans over others, people who are not white Europeans. And so in Ireland, we have this history where we too were colonized as a people. The, The nation of Ireland was colonized. And so Ireland would look at it and say, no, there's no racism in Ireland. Everybody, you know, can, you know, can achieve the same result, you know, here. But Key things that begins to tell us a difference, for example, yeah, you know, and those are the things that my work looks at. We look at our census statistics from 2011 to 2016 because we collect our census, what, every five years in Ireland? So in Ireland, the unemployment rates pre-COVID-19, the unemployment rates was 5.4%. It was the lowest that we had seen, you know, since the crash, you know, and from 2007, 2009, you know, since after the crash. So the lowest that we had seen, 5.4%. But that windfall was very selective. It was not for everybody. If you were Western European, the unemployment rate for that group was between 5 and 9%. For Eastern European in Ireland, the unemployment rate was between 13% and 17%. Guess what it was for Black Africans? For Black Africans in Ireland, the unemployment rate was between 43 and 63%. If you were Congolese in Ireland, God help you, the unemployment rate of Congolese in Ireland in our 2016 census, in our 2016 census, the unemployment rate for the Congolese was 63%. In 2011, it was 70%. Immediately, we begin to see, unless you're saying, and that's what my thesis is about, I'm saying, unless you're saying that there is something wrong with this group of people, if there is nothing wrong with them, then there must be something within our system that makes it that this group of people have such a high unemployment rate. As a black person, you think, standard, you know it's going to be that. I think what's quite interesting what you draw out is not only the hierarchy in race, but the hierarchy in ethnicity. You, The Eurocentric view will yeah. always posit the Western European above the East European. That's right. I guess it kind of goes back to like the kind of genealogy. This is what I kind of look at. It was like, if you look at from like Max Weber's work, or if you look at 
uh, John Stewart's Mill work, there's an idea of a hierarchy of white people. Mm. And on this hierarchy, and, and Trump kind of frequently mentions this, so of this hierarchy of Western Europeans, which now includes America and Australia and Canada, then you have the people who are Southern Europeans, Italians, Romans, sorry, Italians, Spanish people, because they're a bit closer to Africa, so they're a bit below them and generally are Catholic and not Protestant. These kind of things start coming into the play. So this yeah. idea of this Eurocentric view is highly stratified. Absolutely. And, you know, if you look at it, so in my work, you know, and because when I talk about racial stratification, people ask me, say, okay, if you say then all the white people should be at the top, should be at the same level. I'm like, no, not all the white people, because remember, there was a time when the Irish were not whites. <laughs> you know, so the Irish were physically white, but you know, they were not white. They had to earn the whiteness. They had to fight their way into being seen as white, you know. So that whiteness is symbolic again, you know, so that there is symbolic whiteness in itself. You know, and, and so you look at that in itself. So that with even within the white group, there is a I call it an interest stratification. You know, mm -hmm. so that even within the group, you know, so say so if I go back a little bit to, you know, so, so that my work is not just anecdotal, you know, and that's what I contribute um, to the conversation because, and you know, like you mentioned, you know, like, you know, black parents always tell their kids, you have to work four or five times harder. Now, what my work does is actually shows you evidence why um, you have to work four or five times harder. I use, what I do there is rather than just telling you that, you know, 43% unemployment rate for black people and, you know, Eastern Europeans. What I do there is I take the census data and I arrange it, I show it to you as a strata. So I show you who is at the top and who is at the bottom. So first, that data, our census shows you. So I show, teach people how to determine the racial order in your country in your organization, you know, so even in your organization, you can look at it, who is at the top. So look at it, you know, who are the managers, who are in the middle, who are at the bottom. So it tells you the racial order in your organization. You know, it tells you the racial order in the UK, it tells you the racial order in Ireland. So that's one thing I did. So use the census. But also, in addition to that, I actually asked people, because there's a theory, you know, and that's what I based my book on. So the theory of um, immigration and racial stratification, it says that people have a way of knowing the racial order in the countries where they are. It says that if they did not know it when they came in as migrants, that when they get there, they somehow have a way of knowing. I'm like, okay, so if people know the racial order, let me find out from those in Ireland how, what is the racial order one? And then two, how do they know the racial order? So when I asked them, so I gave, so what I did, and I explained that in the book, I, you know, gave people, you know, four different nationalities. And I said, arrange them the way you would. And so you would see, interestingly, the Africans, they put them at the bottom, the Eastern Europeans in the middle, and then the Western Europeans, you know, and then the Irish at the top. But then I asked them, I said, how were you able to separate the white groups? And that's what you're asking. And so in my book, I actually show that there's an interest stratification in the labor market. There's a, an interest stratification racially that even while all the groups are white, that they use different things to know. So one of them is the GDP of the country, of the sending country. So for example, if you're coming from Poland versus if you're coming from Germany, so they stratify those from Poland or those from Lithuania or from Latvia. They stratify them lower than those from Germany. Why? Because Germany has a higher GDP than these other countries. You know, so even the GDP of these countries is used to stratify the whites. So it causes an intra stratification within, you know, the group. At one point. Poland and Lithuania was a massive power in Europe, right? One of the biggest nations in Europe, very powerful. It shows you how kind of neoliberal free market notions have kind of taken over and taken hold of people's mentality. So the idea that GDP drives it, because Germany is the engine of growth, was also the cause of much destruction in Europe for a very long time. But yeah, people will prize their migrants higher than someone like Poland, which was a victim of that aggression. So it's quite interesting to see how these things play out. But how does um, that racial stratification in all groups, with the white group, with the black group, how does that essentialized personality, essentialized personality or personhood affect the people that are, that are kind of party to this? So how does it make people feel? As a black person, walk into a place knowing that you're at the bottom. How does that make us feel? As a white person, knowing you're at the top, do you realise you're at the top? 
And no. those people that those people that are in the middle, how do they know they're in the middle? How do they feel being <laughs> in the middle? You know, well, the middle is a funny place to occupy, right? The middle is a funny place to occupy. The best place to occupy is the top. You know, if we were all at the top, <laughs> there would be no problem. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, <laughs> but those those at the top, you know, they gain psychically from it. You know, mm-hmm. there's something. It it builds your self esteem. It builds your value. Because what it does is that you go into a place, you're sure that there will be people who look like you. You're sure that there will be people who understand you. You're sure you don't have to prove anything. You know, see, Delgado talks, said that white, you know, come into a place, you know, it was Dubois, you know, and even Fanon, they talk about all of this, you know. He says that they come in already expecting to be treated. And, that, and that, that's what whiteness does. Being at the top does is that you come in already expecting to be treated a certain way, you know? So, you know, and that's why there's outrage. Why can't I have this? You know, so we have rights. So citizenship is the right to have rights, you know? (laughs) And so what this positioning at the top does is that it actually gives them this boldness to have the rights, you know, to question, you know? And there's outrage when they don't have the things that they expect that they should have. Now, it also has a, a negative impact on those who are at the bottom. So when you look at people at the back, when you're at the back, what happens? You can see everything in front of you. Yeah. So those people who are at the bottom of the ladder, they can see inequality right in front of them. They can see those who are being favored. They can see those who are being disfavored. They can see inequality right in front of them. And so that's why people say, oh, why are blacks always agitating? Because they can see the inequality is so obvious to them. You know, those who are at the top are not looking back to see what's happening to those at the back. They are only just looking at themselves and going, you know. We spoke to Nasamir about race and racism in Scotland. And it's making me think about these places that are in proximity to England or Britain and how it they kind of create this false notion of like a colorblindness and um, beyond race and all this sort of thing. Like, and it actually makes race even harder to speak about on how it's stratified. Like when you've got an, an, uh, an idea or a country that's built on an idea of a racial utopia, like, do you know what's quite difficult about this conversation actually, particularly thinking about Scotland and now thinking about Ireland is that it's not that it's easy to talk about race in England. Like we have people that are denying the existence of racial stratification constantly around us. But there's something very specific in particular about um, the surrounding countries where it's it's kind of it's it's more utopian. It's more the language is much more utopian. Do you know what the madness is? Right, I think it's in their oppression. Right, they've all been oppressed by the English. Right, so we have a mutual disdain for the same people. Right, but that doesn't yeah. mean you're going to treat me the same. So when I have been in those spaces, I found it easier to talk about race because we're talking about oppression right so they seem to understand oppression however if you switch the dynamic if you start talking about if i've been in the space in scotland start talking about the oppression of muslim people it's a different issue they can't yeah. really understand it or if i'm yeah. in ireland and i start talking about racism black black and white racism in ireland when they view themselves as part of that historical struggle against the man and against against uh, mass colonization and and even terrorism because parts of ireland have been terroristic to uh, England, they see themselves on the same side as me. And I'm like, absolutely. well, that's not the case, right? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, like, <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You know, like, it's 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 difficult to talk about because, you know, when you're talking about them, you know, like, you know, what they did to us, you know, so when you're talking about what the British did to the Irish or what they did, you know, to other colonized groups, you know, then everybody wants to talk about it. But when you bring it down and then you start talking about white racism, anti-black racism, then people actually start internalizing it. It's like, okay, you are actually saying that I am a racist. You know, you're actually <laughs> saying that my organization is racist. You, yeah. you know, so you are actually saying that I am part of this racist system, you know. So they begin to hear it differently. And at that point in time, conversation shuts down. And that's why we have the denial, we have the rejection and all of those things. So it is that people get uncomfortable. But one of the things, and I was doing a podcast for someone, I was saying that that uncomfortableness is, is, is key. Number one thing is to stay with that uncomfortableness and ask yourself, really, why am I uncomfortable? Where is it coming from? How can I work with it? Because, you know, and that's why I recommend this book, because if you actually read and understand the foundation of race, you will know that racism 
is an inheritance. We inherited it. You inherited it. I didn't create racism. You didn't create racism. My boss didn't create racism. We all who are alive today, we inherited these racist spaces that we're in because this goes, goes back 400, five, you know, hundreds of years. So we inherited it. So if people understand that, no, this racism we're talking about is an inherited space. But what we are challenging today is what you're doing with that inheritance of racism that you have. Some people have taken this racism they've inherited and they're like, you know what? This is a good space. I like this white, you know, <laughs> I like this white supremacy. I like this white privilege, you know? It, so we've taken it, you know, as of right. And that's where it is. And you ask that question, you know? So those at the top, they've taken that whiteness as rights. You know, their right to have rights. Their right to be at the top. Their right to be unquestioned. And that's where the problem comes from. You know, so so that, that not not wanting to uh, um, give up, you know, what they gain, you know, the gain that comes from there. So we deny it. Once it's kind of put it in those kind of terms, as in rights, rights can be taken away. Rights entail power. Rights entail if a shift of power, it means I might lose out of my privilege. Once mm -hmm. in that kind of dynamic, so it makes change almost impossible because if it's put in in a notion that whiteness equals rights and rights equal power power can be taken away and the idea of being powerless because if the inverse is seeing us black people at the bottom that's powerless right they don't want to see themselves at the bottom so but it's trying to get around and saying it doesn't have to be that way once we kind of stop talking in terms of whiteness being right rights equaling power people are scared of losing power absolutely you know but you know there's no race without power <laughs> race race is race because it is backed by legal power is backed by political power and mm -hmm. those two things they back race and makes race continue to be race you know mm -hmm. they give it the power race can only be raised because it is backed by power you know we are invested our governments are invested in it we call it different things we can call it nationalism we can call it you know irish force or the british force or you know the british for the british you know we call it all kinds of names but you know, at the end of the day, what we're saying is, you know, there's an, people are invested in this um, white superiority, in this white supremacist spaces. You know, we're afraid to change, to call it what it is. We're afraid to call it whiteness. We're, we're afraid to call it white supremacy. We're afraid to call it anti-black racism, you know. And the minute we mention all of those things, people's backs go up, you know, the defensiveness yeah. comes in, the resistance comes in, um, you know, conversations shut down. But that's what it is. What I find really interesting about these conversations is because they really push me to think more critically about how white supremacy is lived and enacted in the everyday. And I think two things can exist at the same time how there can be some white people that don't benefit necessarily directly from white supremacy, but there can be those that do benefit structurally, materially, really pushed on this stuff with Alana Lenton's um, latest book, Why Race Still Matters. And your book as well, I think, really complements um, some of Alana's arguments. One of the things that you say to us really clearly is, look, as Du Bois said, there is a wage of whiteness and people know, lots of people are cognizant of this structure and so often I think maybe for my own well-being or for other black people and people of colour's well-being we've kind of sort of thought like do you know what we need to explain this to them what's happening but actually a lot of these people that are direct beneficiaries of white supremacy do understand how things work you can't not understand because it's so in your face it's so in your face. Yeah. And of, of course, like you've already said, argued, there are people that don't directly benefit, but they're starting from a different position. They're starting from a different position of black people. And that position, as you say, is 10 steps ahead, even though they might not get to the top. But we, there has to be a cross-class awareness of, of the wages of whiteness. And that hasn't changed. And I guess, yeah, again, I need to keep thinking critically about this stuff because for so, for so often I say to myself, oh, they don't realise what's happening. But actually they do. I used to think that. And then I started reading more, I started thinking more. And I think, right, OK, I see whiteness as hegemonic, right? And if you go back to Gramsci's original kind of meaning, it's through cultural production, right? And all their forms of cultural production tell them the same story. They told me the same story. They told yeah. everyone the same story. Whether you're, whether you're watching stuff about working class white people or whether you're working yeah. stuff about, I don't know. Rich like, white people. Or rich white, like yeah. pretty woman. 
yeah. a rich white man and a poor white woman, right? But they've done all right. Both of them done all right in the end, right? So they, yeah. they, the cultural production kind of reinforces that ideological position that whiteness pays, right? As Alana says, race hides whiteness. Mm. When you even look at all of that, you know, you see that, you know, there is a benefit, you know, there is a benefit, you know, that people have from whiteness. And so there's a strong commitment, you know, not to give up, you know, um, that space, how um, race, you know, is classed. You know, so that if we look at, you know, even some of those things that, you know, and people, you know, we try and separate class from race, you know. So in my book, I really talk about how um, that the race that a person is assigned to, that that race becomes classed, you know. And so what I mean by that is that, you know, um, depending on where you are on the social, on the racial ladder. So if you're black, if you're seen as black, that that race is then classed as at the bottom of the ladder. So wherever, because the question that my book tries to answer is that why is it that, you know, in every part of the Western world, this group of people are still at the bottom? You know, so that means there is an unwritten code, there's a social contract, is an unwritten code that people accept, you know. And so that class that has been assigned to a particular race becomes a classed race, which then becomes the default starting position from where they always have to navigate their ways. Uh, one of the questions you asked earlier was just around you know, the impact on people, you know, particularly those who are Black, you know. We talk about the double consciousness, but even without going to that, one of the things I talk about in the book is around the minority agency. So I have a chapter where I talk about minority agency, you know, that racial stratification, even while, you know, you cannot change, you know, so key things, you can change your race, your social strata, you can change your economic strata. You cannot change your racial strata. So if there's anything, you know, this is talking about, it is that. Number two thing is that racial stratification is not about where you end up. It's about where you start. And when you start so far back, where you end up becomes almost inevitable. Unless, of course, you are able to work one, two, three, four, five times harder all right, and then you're able to run faster and be able to catch up, and then you know, uh, and that's where you are able to. So, so that has an impact on people. The impact it has is both emotional, it is psychological, and it is physically exhausting to constantly have to be performing to have to be in that way. So, what my work showed is that in order to navigate the labor market. Um, people of migrant descent, you know, and have to use different ways, you know. So it creates a hierarchy, a hierarchy of uh, a behavioral hierarchy, even among the marginalized groups themselves. And that's why you can, yeah, you know, so that hierarchy comes from a behavioral um, change, you know, so where you use, so three groups of people I talk about in my book are those who resist, those who adapt, and those who collude. So don't yes. I was so excited. I was starting to think about you were as you were speaking, I was like, right, I'm starting to think about the people that how white supremacy to engage in white supremacy and its logics, you don't have to be a white person. You can find some material gain in colluding yeah. with the logics of white supremacy. And I guess this is something that we return to time and time again on the podcast, like how hard we find it talking about that stuff but it's so integral um, to the history of how race has been organized within society you need those colluders and that it's it's difficult to come to terms with that but it's so true there has to be some kind of material benefit at the end so i can see the kind of material benefits it allows one to navigate a particular world right and so i've seen it you see it in academia you see in in the corporate world where this black person seems to be for certain black people acting in a different way yeah. and yeah. even that even that statement is problematic itself because it shows you how this cat that that racial classification has affected me and how i see my own absolutely. people absolutely absolutely these essentialized personalities that we adopt it has essentially destroyed our personhood we become a symbolic totem really that we walk around representing all the time how do i get past this this symbolic interactionism because it affects my dealings with my own people. 
that to me is problematic. It is problematic. You know, in one of the chapters in the book, I talk about, you know, judgment, particularly, mm. you know, when we talk about, you know, I ask a question, you know, and, you know, we ask, you know, like, what should we teach? You know, we talk, we talk mm. about toleration. We talk about acceptance. We talk about, you know, uh, you know, recognition and respect, you know. And so a lot of the things when for racial stratification to occur, you must use one key thing, and that is judgment. You must place a judgment on something. The judgment can be quick. It can be a snap judgment, but you've made a judgment. You've made a judgment that this person belongs to this group, that this person is this. So that judgment that we make, you know, is, is, is the imputing of that judgment. Because what my book tries, that's why I say it's more theoretical, you know. So mm. not just to talk about, oh, this is happening. No, it's to get us to go inside ourselves and understand how it happens, because what I hope will the book will do for people is that you will learn how to self-regulate, you know, that so that people can no longer tell us I did not know or I don't know how it happens. So I describe for you how it happens. So, so when we make difference, when we see difference, when we hear difference, you must before you perform a stereotype, before you perform racism, before you impute a value on the person, before you decide I am my stereotype or that my hair and, you know, that I fit my stereotype, you must have passed a judgment. And the yeah. only place that that change can happen is when we become conscious of our space of judgment, you know? So what that means is, and so I describe, you know, toleration, recognition, and then acceptance. I say that acceptance is the tipping point is the middle ground. So acceptance is that point where you actually are not judging, you know, you are not imputing a positive or a negative judgment. If I judge something negatively, right? Maybe, you know, the color of your skin, I'm like, oh, that means that, you know, the person can't read or the person can't write or the person is uneducated or blah. If I have judged that negatively, for me to be able to work with that person, I have to tolerate that person or tolerate the religion or tolerate the thing about you to be able to work with you or be with you. If I give that thing a positive judgment, right, then I will respect and recognize it. So acceptance in my book, I describe acceptance as the middle ground, as a tipping point where you're not imputing a positive judgment. You are not even imputing a negative judgment. You're accepting what you are seeing as a true representation of themselves. So this is, I'm not judging it as bad. I'm not judging it as good. This person before me is a true representation. Until we are able to come to that point, until we are able to begin to teach people how to work with difference in that way, inequality will continue to exist. Could I not feign acceptance and it, it be come across as indifference, right? I, if I don't, if I don't yeah. impart a judgment one way or the other, cannot not be seen as indifferent. And in, if I'm indifferent, if we go back to the work of Barman, he said that was the attitude of the Germans to the Jews. It, it, they were indifferent. And so when someone did come come along with essentially anti-Semitic and racist views, that was always a cover. That indifference was a cover. And it, well, as we know, having's turned out. But this is one of the problems with acceptance. It, it's it's one of those terms where I need to kind of impart some kind of judgment. How do we stop acceptance being apathetic? So when you look at acceptance, and in the book I describe, there's authentic acceptance, okay? Mm -hmm. So because, again, why I think acceptance is important is think about, you know, anybody who has been marginalized, any group at all. What is the one thing they ask you for? What is the one thing they ask for? The minute they open their mouth, what do they ask for? They ask for their difference to be what? Accepted. They don't ask for it to be respected. They ask ultimately for it to be respected. What do they ask for? They ask for their accept for their difference to be accepted. That's what they're asking. They go to the workplace, they want to be accepted. So if people are saying that this is what I want, no matter how problematic it is, as social scientists, we have a responsibility to investigate it, to find a way to make that happen. And so that's why I stayed with it. I didn't just come up with acceptance. The people I interviewed said they wanted to feel accepted. And so then I looked, so I talked with them to say, what does acceptance mean? How do you recognize it? Because when you are accepted in a place, you will know. You know when you are accepted. You know authentic acceptance. That's it. So even when somebody is faking the acceptance, right, you, you will know. And so in the book, I describe authentic acceptance. I describe 
you know, um, even the, you know, the one that is not authentic, you know, that when somebody's just, you know, placé, you know, you're just, you know, indifferent, you know, indifference, indifference shows because acceptance is in the action. You know, mm -hmm. we, we're talking about being anti-racist, you know, so anti-racist is not a, you know, the racist is a person, but the anti-racist is an action. You're not, you mm -hmm. cannot be an anti-racist by who you are. It is what you do. You know, so it's the same thing that acceptance is seen by the actions. It's not it, it's not a, a person, it's an action. Yeah. So that's the same <laughs> thing with, with acceptance, looking at it that it is an action. So if I accept your difference, my actions will tell you that. Poignant, that's such a great answer. It's how you encounter difference, right? It's how you're choosing to encounter difference. Yeah. And given I guess one of the pleas that marginalized people are saying, like, just accept me as who I am. Like, I've walked into the room, accept me as who I, I can't do anything about what I am. Yeah, yeah. Right? So just accept me in this present moment. The past is the past. And yeah. the kind of the kind of line that white people take right now, not all white people, the kind of the, the free speech lot, that basically they, they weren't slave masters, accept me right now. I, weren't, I didn't create racism, except, you know. <laughs> and we're just saying the same thing, right? Accept what? me now. Exactly. You know, like mm -hmm. Black Lives mm -hmm. Matter, we're just asking you to do exactly the same thing you're asking us to do for you yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. that's all we're just saying just accept us as human like you know yeah. you didn't create racism i'm not calling you kkk and we're not you know yeah, yeah. you know we're mm -hmm. not calling you murderers anymore so then stop calling yeah. us you know enslaved people stop you know so but you're still treating you understand you know so that colonial image is still how people are being treated today so we're asking mm -hmm. for exactly the same thing that others have and that's mm -hmm. all say accept me based on you know martin luther king's call was for that you know mm -hmm. based on the content of their character not on their past that's what he asked for and so that's mm -hmm. acceptance you know so i think mm -hmm. it's something we've run away from it because you know we, we are not, but we should stay with it. We should look at it. It is difficult to theorize, but I think it is something because if people say that that's what they want, then that's what, you know, helps them feel integrated. That's what helps them feel a part of the system. If you look at acceptance in that, in, that, in those sort of like positive values, like things like care and love, they're hard to properize because yeah. they're seen as positive attributes that no one really kind of talks about. Yeah. In, in in a Western notion, they're seen as almost as a weakness sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. if we want to kind of talk about acceptance, we'd start talking about care and love and what that means to our fellow human beings, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like even with um, COVID nineteen and since the uh, George Floyd and you know May twenty fifth thing, you know, I ran a few webinars in Ireland, and you know, part yeah. of the conclusion we had was that you know that you know this you know what we're having is a care crisis. It's, a, it's yeah. a crisis of care. That's what we are having. You understand? Mm -hmm. Because think about it. I'm, I was saying to everyone, I said, look, blacks, Black Lives Matter, what are we asking you to do? It's only one thing. We're asking you to care. We're asking you to care that, you know, some groups of people, more than a, a percentage of them spend their time in jail. We're asking you to care, you know, that, you know, this, this group of people are at the bottom of the ladder. We're asking, so it is a care crisis. People don't care. If we care, we will do something about it. The things we care about, we're doing something about. Really, what we have is a care crisis. So if we run away from dealing with the lack of care, I mean, look at, you know, Syrian refugees that are all, you know, even refugees that are being left to sea. What have we done? We've criminalized care, you know? We've ended up criminalizing care, you know? But that's it, you know? So again, in my book, I talk about counter-narratives. I talk about stories, you know, um, one of the things I think I, I, I talk about really well in the book is about how racism, because I was wondering, like, how does racism, how does white supremacy, how does it go from generation to generation? Because like I said, you know, we've inherited these racist spaces that we're in. We were not born then. So how did it pass down? How do we have it? How does my neighbor know to be racist? How does the five-year-old know to ask for a, 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 an N-word pass? Do you know, like, you know, in Ireland, we're hearing young students are asking, you know, their black colleagues in class to say, oh, can I get a, a pass to use the N-word on you? I'm like, seriously, you know, so, <laughs> so how does, how does all of that knowledge transfer? So in my work, I, I in the book, I talk about how stories, mm. you know, the narratives that we tell, the stock stories, the dominant discourse, how those stories are passed from generation to generation. 
So it is in the stories. So you want to, so when we talk about active unlearning, which I talk about in the book, for you to actively unlearn, you need to, number one, identify the kind of stories that you are telling. What kind of stories are being told in your office? Oh, they are not applying. You know, <laughs> you know, when you look at you know, the fact that, you know, black people are not being promoted or maybe at the bottom, you say, oh, you know, they are very loud. So that's a stock story. So you then want to challenge that story because that is the story that is passed down. So if you cannot break down the stories, you know, you can't get to uh, to making the changes that we want to make. In academia, we're equally placed because we place a primacy on Western knowledge, right? So yeah. we put that Western knowledge at the top and we universalize that. So we will leave our countries of origin to study in America or to study in the UK. And that idea that it's the central, that the idea, the epistemology, that this knowledge is the key knowledge. It is the central. Already we've, we've, we've participated in that kind of, uh, that ranking system. Yeah, ourselves, and I'm. I, we're rooted in the enlightenment, so I, I, I try. I fight that quite a lot myself. But I try to think to myself like I always start off with the enlightenment, but this is this is it's a fallacy. This is I'm part of the problem, right? We're socialized. We forget. Yeah. You know, we, <laughs> well, don't forget. You know, like we're growing mm. up in the system. You know, so mm. so that's why you know if you're in Ireland, you like mashed potatoes, chips, and you know all of those things. You know, because the the system is socializing us. We're hearing the yeah. same thing. We're listening to the same media. We're we're watching the same thing. So you know, people assume that oh, because you're black, you must be woke. No, not every black person is woke. You know, <laughs> not, not every black person. You know, you know they say. Well, we wish they were. No, 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 no. You know, not <laughs> not, not every black person, you know, they say not every not every skin is skin. Have you heard that one? You know, yeah. not everyone who is skin is skin. Yeah? yeah. So, so you know, and, and you know, going back with we, we you talked about, you know, black skin, white mask, you know, and that's what it's talking about, you know, or or even when um what's his name now talks about the you know the miseducation, the miseducation of the black person. You know, Kataji Woodson. So if you go back to yeah. all of those things that we are particularly if we, if our education is within this colonial system, you know, and we are getting a, a curriculum, we're being taught from a system, you know, that is not decolonized. So we're learning the same thing. And so unless we educate ourselves, even as, you know, black people, you know, we also then become, you know, black skin, but extremely white mass. So we have people in the academy, you know, who might be black skin, but white mass producing white knowledge, white and um, white logic, you know, in, in the way we look at, you know, things. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Oh, Evan, we're going to have to finish there. That was, even that was just like, it was brilliant. It was such a great conversation and such a really poignant and critical description of racial stratification. I think something that people can basically learn from and use there. So thank you so much for that. That was absolutely brilliant. Um, um, Thank you so much for joining us, listeners. As you know, we'll be back again next week. And patrons, we've got another episode for you. So stay tuned. You have been listening to Surviving Society with Chantel and Tiso. If you enjoy the podcast, and find it useful for your ever-expanding sociological imagination, please consider supporting the podcast if you have the means via our Patreon. If not, you can always support us by subscribing, rating and reviewing on your preferred podcast platform.